Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. I was born in uh, 1975, so that means majority of my childhood, at least the part, portions of the childhood that I remember were in the 80s. And my toy of choice back then, some of you can, uh, this is, was, was true of you as well, G.I. Joe figures. The G.I. Joe figures in the 80s, and I think it's still the same today, were little plastic figurines about, kind of like Star Wars figures, about this high. I'm explaining it for the millennials, of course. <laughs> um, I think they started all the way back in 1964, and they were more like doll size. You know, four branches of the military, and, uh, and then they kind of branched out you know, from there. But as a kid, uh, the thing that we love to do is disassemble them. I mean, like every young boy, that, that's what you do with your toys. You, you have to dis, disassemble them. And so when you open up a G.I. Joe figurine, what you discover, the torso is connected to the, the legs and the arms with an elastic band. And inside there are a couple of little hooks that the band runs through. So what we thought the best thing you could possibly do is disassemble your G.I. Joe and make a hybrid. So you take the arms of this guy, the legs of this guy, the head of this guy, and you have like this, these hybrid warriors. Were you one of those kids? Did you want to take a look inside your toys and see what was on the inside were you one of those people who wondered, how does this work? And if you were, then you know sometimes you would disassemble something, and when you tried to put it back together, it, would, it wouldn't work properly afterwards. You might not be able to assemble it again, and yet that was the price you had to pay in order to satisfy your inner curiosity. Well, that's how I'm setting up this sermon. John 5, as I said, is our passage. At the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus heals a guy who was lame for 38 years. Let me repeat that. He was lame for 38 years in a time when life expectancy would have been only in the early 40s. You would say, we would say this is a quintessential lost case or a hopeless case. I mean, he's been a quadriplegic for as long as you know, most people live the duration of their lives. And then all of a sudden, he's at a, a pool, and Jesus miraculously heals this man. And you would think that a lot of the people would respond to this miracle by saying, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen in our lives. This is, whoa, this is wonderful. And instead, they end up replying, this is terrible. You're violating the Sabbath. <laughs> this is Sabbath violation. So when the religious leaders see this man walking through the temple carrying his mat, the mat that he's laid on for the last 38 years, they confront him and they say, who do you think you are? And why are you doing this? And what's crazy about the story, instead of replying like anybody who has just experienced a life-altering miracle, you know, I've been, this is the first day I've walked in 38 years, (laughs) I'm healed, you know, hallelujah. Instead, those of you who know the story, you know what happens. The guy rats Jesus out to the authorities. He says, well, it was his fault. He's the one who told me to take up my mat and, and walk. It's almost like he's saying, I'm the victim of the guy who healed me. It's crazy. Well, it's a, fun, a fantastic story. But what I've chosen then to focus a sermon on 
is the debate that follows between Jesus and the religious leaders. As the front of your bulletin suggests, in the words of Jesus here, the debate that ensues is truly remarkable because in it, Jesus starts to unpeel, open up for us the mysterious inner workings of the Trinity. The inner life. He gives us a glimpse into the inner life of the Trinity. It's incredibly high-level stuff, and I'll be 100% honest with you, I don't understand everything that, even that I'm going to say today. Um, It would have been a lot easier to preach the story part of John chapter 5, but the reason I'm focusing on this section, I am genuinely curious about God, (laughs) and I want you to be too. So with that in mind, what I would like you to do is bow your heads, close your eyes for 30 seconds, is all I'm asking, 30 seconds to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to stir up inside of you a curiosity to like want to know what is on the, on the inside, so to speak. Because uh, I think that most Sundays when we come to church, that word is not the word that one would use to describe us. We don't come here full of curiosity. Do we? And so, 30 seconds, bow your heads and pray and ask the Spirit to stir that up inside of you. Amen. Verse 9, or verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. At, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. But the day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat." But the man replied, "Well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk." So they asked him, "Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk?" And the man who was healed said he had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And then notice what he does. He rats Jesus out again. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had done this, who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this, various, to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, or amen, amen, The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so... The Son gives life to those to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son 
just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear. Isn't that interesting? He's actually talking about uh, a resurrection that is happening as people are hearing his words and believing them. Uh, A time is coming and has even now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Whose voice? The son's voice. And come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we're going to cover are three mysteries of the Trinity in this passage. There are more mysteries than I'm able to touch on. I'm going for three because that's what every pastor does in a sermon. He picks three. Mystery number one, mystery of the Trinity, number one, is found in verse 26, and I'd like you to look at it with me again. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The first part of that is, I think, relatively easy for us to understand, God the Father has self-existent life. God the Father has a life, an eternal life, that does not depend on anything or anyone. We would say that the life of God the Father is a life that is not contingent. And if that starts to already get a little confusing, what the Bible does is it gives us a visible representation of this in an earlier episode in the Old Testament. Uh, We've talked about it before. Uh, But when Moses goes to Mount Sinai and he he comes upon that bush that's burning on the hillside, he steps a little closer and he realizes the fire of that bush is not consuming the bush. And Moses realizes that that fire, the fire is a self-existent fire. The fire is a fire that does not depend, it's not contingent upon oxygen, it's not contingent upon you know, carbon fuel, it is a self-replenishing fire. And, uh, and that is what is being spoken of here. It is the doctrine that theologians refer to as the doctrine of aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. In Latin, you know, the word asi or ase is uh, of himself or from himself. It's the doctrine that states that God draws his unending energy in and from himself and from nothing else. 
So another way this gets illustrated is when Moses says to God there again at the burning bush, what should I tell Pharaoh? When I go back to Pharaoh and Pharaoh asks, who sent you? What's the name of God that I'm supposed to refer to? And God replies, you're just to tell him the I am. I am. I am. I sent you. That again is a representation, a linguistic representation of this doctrine of aseity. The first half of the, the verse makes a little bit of sense. But look with me then at the second half of that verse because this is where I think things start to get a little confusing. The father, he has life in himself. Okay, what am I? For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. A life in himself, a self-existent life that has been granted by another, wouldn't that, wouldn't that make it seem as though that self-existent life is dependent upon that grant? Or another way of putting it, was there ever a time when Jesus the Son had not been granted this doctrine of aseity, this, this self-existent life? Because if there was ever such a time, then he, you, you wouldn't actually have aseity to begin with. <sighs> Enter the great St. Augustine, who spends hundreds and hundreds of pages working through this. And what he does, he refers to verse 26, what's being spoken of here, as an eternal grant. The Father has eternally granted the Son to the, for, so that the Son might too have self-existent life. And you say, well, how does that work? The way that the Father grants this self-existent life to the Son is through his eternal begottenness. Yeah, it's the word that we use in the creed. No, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, uh, or the, yeah, the only begotten Son, our Lord. It's that mysterious word we never use in the 21st century, begotten, uh, begottenness, which indicates that in some sense, in some sense, in some very mysterious sense, the Son derives his sonship from the Father. You can think about it, father and son. I mean, they are, right, so intimately connected because you can't be a son without first having a father. But then there could never be a time when there was no son because if you ever had a time where there was no son, then there would be a time when there was no father because you have to have a son to be, to be a father. Um, and a father does not make a son. He doesn't create a son, at least in the ancient language. He begets a son. And therefore, through the years, theologians have referred to this mystery as the, the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, or maybe better put, the eternal begottenness of the Son. And we confess it in the Nicene Creed when we say that Jesus is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, I will let you in on a little secret. Nobody quite understands what that means. <laughs> like nobody completely understands what we are we're talking about there. Like we confess it, but it is admittedly beyond our ability to explain. What we are doing in, the, in those creeds is we are confessing an ineffable mystery. Cool word, right? Ineffable. 
an ineffable mystery, a mystery that is, is too great for the capacity of human language, the capacity of human words to explain. So to summarize, what we are being told in verse 26 is that Jesus, he is eternal life, he has self-existent life in himself, and yet in some way that self-existence has been eternally granted to him by his father, and it has been granted to him by his father, at least the church you know, theologians have always said, by this eternal begottenness. Or, in the words of St. Augustine, he puts it this way, The Father remains life. The Son also remains life. The Father, life in himself, not from the Son. The Son, life in himself, but from the Father. For the Son was begotten by the Father to be life in himself. But the Father is life in himself unbegotten. And then in a beautiful turn of phrase, he says, he says, hear the Father through the Son. Rise, receive life in him. Receive life in him who has life in himself that you may receive life which you do not have in yourself. Whew. Now, some of us would call this mind-bendingly beautiful. And others of us would say, what in the world did he just say? <laughs> that was so confusing. And it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, I, what I want you to know is I am, I, I am not playing you know, theology games. I'm not trying to impress you with theology. I'm not playing games with theology. I'm, what I am trying to help you see, I'll put it this way. We have this word for God. I think it's derived from the German, Gott. And our word for God is God. Extremely simple word, right? Monosyllable, three letters, G-O-D. And you know, I, I have a hunch that if the word that we had for God was something bigger, like three persons united in one eternal essence, and like that is our word for God, that suggests to us that there is some wonderful, mysterious complexity, right, to, to whatever God is. But as it is, we have such a, a simple word. It's, it's almost like it implicitly, we're like, God, oh yeah, I got that. <laughs> um, but it's actually Jesus in verse 26 who is inviting us to consider more deeply these mysteries, these, these awesome things that are behind this word God. You and I, we didn't come up with verse 26. Jesus came up with verse 26, and he's inviting us to do something that we're not really accustomed to, and that is to think very deeply about these things. Mystery number two of the Trinity. If you're writing this down, this is a long one, but here we go. In every action, the Father and the Son work inseparably due to the fact that they have a single will. And by that single will, all of their actions are actions in unity. Very quickly, in every action, the Father and Son work inseparably due to the fact they have a single will, and, and, all, and through that single will, they always act in unity. What does that mean? Well, this. If you were to interview a first century Jew and were to ask them, like, tell me the things that Yahweh in the Old Testament does. Like, what are the prerogatives of Yahweh? Uh, 
Undoubtedly on their list, there would be at least these four things. And all four of these things are found in the passage we just read. Yahweh creates creation. Yahweh sustains sustenance or providence is the way we refer to it. Yahweh resurrects. For only Yahweh has the power to bring someone back from the dead. Resurrection. And Yahweh judges. Final judgment is in Yahweh's hands. Now, now if you read here closely, you see that Jesus attributes all of those, those Yahweh prerogatives to God the Father. And now look with me in verse 19. <clears throat> I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Along uh, comes Augustine again. And Augustine says, well, why don't we look at verse 19 through the lens of one of those prerogatives? So let's look at 19 through the lens of creation. Let's reread it. If you, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing of himself in creation. He can do only what he sees his father doing in creation because whatever the father does in creation, the son also does. And uh, Augustine says, he, he asked the question, father showing son, is, is this like a, an apprenticeship relationship? Is this an apprenticeship? Is this like very common in the ancient world? Your dad is a shoemaker. Guess what? You're probably going to be apprentice to him and you, you're going to grow up and you're going to be a shoemaker. How does apprenticeship work? I will show you how to do things. And then after I've done those things a few times, I kind of hand over the authority to you and have you do those things. And Augustine's like, is that what's going on here? That the son is apprentice to the father, say, in the work of creation? And he's like, well, no, 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 no. Does God the Father ever create apart from the Son? No. No. Maybe you've noticed in the news, or maybe you're a geek <laughs> and you read the geek news, that the star, the, the 12th brightest star in the night sky is Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is in the upper left-hand shoulder of Orion. And astronomers have been noticing recently that Betelgeuse is dimming. Mysteriously, all of a sudden, it's becoming darker and darker at night, leading astronomers to wonder, is Betelgeuse actually dying? Is it about to explode? But if we were to put it like in 21st century terms, Augustine would say, so did, did the father like, create Betelgeuse and create other nebulas? Say over here in this part of the galaxy and sort of say, hey, son, watch how we do this. And then the son is given other parts of the galaxy to create. And the sun, he goes off and makes these galaxies. Is that what's going on? No. And how do we know it? Because the very beginning of the Gospel of John, all things were made by the, by the Logos, by the Word, by the Son. And so, it leads us to uh, conclude this. The Father works through the Son in such a way that no, quote, no works are done either by the Father without the Son or by the Son without the Father. For whenever you see the Son working, the Father is working. And whenever you see this, this, uh, the Father, did I get it backwards? Whenever you see one working, the other is working because their workings are not here. Let me show you. Okay, I will do it. Their workings, all their workings are are coextensive. They are simultaneous. They, they are all together. 
of a sort. Does that make sense? People are nodding their heads no. <laughs> One or two of you have maybe have read or have heard of a book that was written back in 1949. The reason I'm going to reference this book is because it was very influential in George Lucas's developing the storyline of Star Wars. It was written by Joseph Campbell. It's entitled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Anybody? The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I can't remember. Campbell, he might have been a historian. He might have been a literature guy. But what he says in this book is is essentially there's a superhero story that can be found. You know, it's transcultural. It's found in all cultures. Like every culture has the story of a miraculous birth. Maybe it's a virgin birth. Maybe it's uh, midichlorians, you know, whatever it is. But there's this, the hero comes, he's born, he, he comes onto the scene, he delivers different cultures and different religions. They all call that hero by a different name, but it's all the same guy. He's the hero of a thousand faces. And I think that's why our culture has the particular attitude that it has today towards Christianity. Because our culture's attitude is, is this. You know, if Jesus is your way of being religious, that's fine. Like, more power to you. Go knock yourself out. If it's, if it's Jesus for you, great. But just don't be judgmental and narrow-minded and suggest to uh, insist that there are not other valid ways of being religious because, I mean, come on, at the end of the day, it's all the same thing. It's just a hero with a thousand faces. They just go by different names. Does that sound familiar? Sure, but believe whatever you want to believe about Jesus, but just don't go forcing your beliefs on others and telling me what I can or can't believe. And what I want you to do, what I, what I want you to see, like on, on some level, that resonates with me because my personality, probably even the older I become, I'm a very live and let live person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested in foisting my religion on anyone, you know. It's a free country, freedom of religion. You can believe what you want to believe. But if we say that that is Christianity, that Jesus is you know, a way toward God, that he is an expression of the divine, he is one subjective religious expression among many subjective religious expressions, what I want you to see is that position, it contradicts everything that Jesus says about himself here. Everything that he says about himself here. Creation. Judgment, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead, I should say resurrection, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Judgment, verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, and by that he's saying, it's not that the Father doesn't judge, but But he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who who sent him. You know, the the Jews knew that God was going to be the judge of all the earth. The Jews knew that every human being would someday have to stand before God to hear God pronounce his judgment on their lives. That's, That's Old Testament 101. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the last judgment in the Bible, do you know how the last judgment is, is pretty much universally depicted? It is depicted like a sudden catastrophe. We, we dabble around with 
ideas like it in our dystopian literature and books, you know, the nuclear war that hits the world unexpectedly and we're in nuclear winter, or the disease that is um, uh, resistant to all other forms of medicine and it wipes out, you know, half of the planets. And actually, like, they're totally tapping into the way the Bible describes the final judgment. It has that cataclysmic catastrophe element to it. And Jesus says in verse 22, the Father will judge this earth through the Son, through me. You will stand before me. You will stand before me and give account for your life. I am the hero of the story. I am the last verdict of the story. And again, to suggest that he's just one of many options is, yeah, you have to deny everything that he talks about uh, of himself here. So mystery number two, in every action, creation, in every action, that is creation, sustenance, resurrection, judgment, the father and the son work inseparably due to the fact that they have a single will And by that single will, they act in unity. And in the case of judgment, the father is rendering his judgment through the judgment of the son. Now, before I move to the last point, I want to just, uh, I mean, admit that those words about last judgment, I know that they are seriously narrow-minded and and judgmental. and so let's do this for just a second. Quick rabbit trail, and I'm almost done with this sermon, but it was going one quick rabbit trail. It's a rabbit trail that somebody pointed out to me. And what they said was, let's imagine, let's take your, a contemporary British person and contrast the way they would interpret the world with their Anglo-Saxon forefathers of a thousand years prior. Let's imagine both of those, you know, the British guy, the Anglo-Saxon, imagine both are reading through the Bible and they come to a place in the Gospels where Jesus claims that he will come at the end of the world to judge the world. And, you know, there's lots of instances of that. But then later on, they're reading in the Gospel and they read about Peter, the leading apostle who denies Jesus three times and even curses Jesus to save his own skin. Yet, If you know the story, Peter is forgiven and Peter is later restored to to leadership. The question is, how do both of those people uh, react? Well, in the case of the first story, uh, the judgment story, a, a contemporary British person would shake their head in disgust because it does sound so judgmental and narrow minded and exclusive. However, a contemporary British person would probably love the story about Peter because it's a story of forgiveness and new beginnings and etc. Well, don't you realize that it's completely reversed with the Anglo-Saxons? The first story of judgment in Anglo-Saxon would be like, we know all about doomsday. We know there's going to be a doomsday. Tell us more about this. (laughs) Um, But then they would be utterly shocked and disgusted by the second story, that disloyalty and and a betrayal at Peter's level, that that would be forgiven, that should never be forgiven. Uh, He doesn't even deserve to live, let alone be the chief apostle. Don't you see what's going on? Like in our cultural moment, 
We say that any religion that preaches condemnation, that religion doesn't get my vote. (laughs) That religion is primitive. And we think of the Anglo-Saxons as primitive. But don't you realize that someday others are going to come and judge our cultural moment and see our views as likewise primitive? Like, how is it that we can use our standard, our, our standard of progressive as the plumb line by which we decide what parts of the Bible are true and what parts of the Bible are invalid? When given the fact that we know, we know many of our beliefs today, our grandparents and our great-grandparents, um, are we, you know, I'm sorry, sorry. Many of the beliefs of our grandparents and our great-grandparents we look at as outmoded and that our children and our children's children are probably going to do the same thing with our views. Wouldn't it be tragic if we threw the Bible away over a belief that at the present we don't like very much? And the, the author continues to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. (laughs) At all times, we must be cautious about letting our own prejudices, our prejudices of the moment, get in the way. The third and final mystery of the Trinity. I I should say this. If you're a first-time visitor here to All Saints, not every sermon's like this. If this has been really confusing, um, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a function of me not doing a good job of, job of explaining it. The thing is, is that when, you know, when you're preaching through the Bible, there are a lot of opportunities to preach a story about healing. There are not a lot of opportunities to open up the insides of the Trinity and to preach on something like this. And so however feeble this attempt has been at that, I just want you to know that, yeah, that, that's why I did it. And if you come back next week, you'll probably hear something very different. But the third and final mystery of the Trinity is a very short one. It is this. Who can know the mind of God? In Christ, we see what the Father does in all that the Father does. Who can know the mind of God? The Son knows the mind of God. And all who hear the Son's words and observe the Son's deeds, they too know the mind of God. The third mystery of the Trinity is that these mysteries have been revealed to us by the Son. That these mysteries are not uh, for a select group of people that lived in Palestine in the first century, a circle of people in the past. It's, it's not limited to those who observed Jesus with their own eyes and heard him in his own words. It's revealed to us. For Jesus sent out his apostles to tell others of his words and deeds. And John fulfilled that great commission by writing this gospel. Uh, these words that we have in our hands this morning. And I hope if it, does, if it does one single thing to you. If it does one thing, it, it would be this. That it would stir up your curiosity into who this God really is. Amen.